Well, good morning and welcome back to our series through the book of Hebrews. Last week we arrived at probably the most famous portion of the book, that being chapter 11. One of the greatest passages on faith in the Bible. Also note, as I shared last time, that we are looking at this portion of Hebrews in three parts. Faith explained, faith exemplified, and then faith encouraged. Last week's message was faith explained, in which I did my best to help you understand and apply the best uh, definition that really we could find for faith in the Bible. From the very first verse of the chapter, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence-based conviction of things unseen. From that foundational definition of faith, the inspired author of Hebrews moves into what many have dubbed the roll call of faith, where we can see biblically defined faith exemplified through the lives of our spiritual forebears. Now, within these next 36 verses of Scripture, the writer of Hebrews mentions at least 20 different heroes of faith. Any of these individuals could easily constitute an entire message or even a series of messages. Simply recounting the whole story of any of these individuals could take half an hour. Meanwhile, we're already doing what amounts to a series on faith within a series through Hebrews, and at some point we probably ought to get through this book of the Bible, preferably before a generation of us dies off. <laughs> All that to say, I am not going to try to approach this passage one faithful hero at a time, and besides, the goal of the writer of Hebrews in this chapter is not to give biographies or to teach multiple things about each person, but rather he would seem to have the same goal throughout. What the author uh, wants to do is to point out generally how each one of these exemplified biblical faith. He's really just trying to illustrate the biblical definition of faith that he just gave by pointing to these faithful men and women. So what we're going to do rather than walk through the litany or cover each person, is to pull out just a few of the most obvious faith principles that we see demonstrated by these faithful men and women. And hopefully from them, we'll find the inspiration to more conscientiously act upon faith in our own lives. Now, even though I won't cover it all, I do want to read this entire passage. If you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 11 of Hebrews, or you can look to the screen. And we're going to read this from where we are, uh, left off last week. So chapter 11 from verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. 
By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and, and, in, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise, promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw it was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, as seeing him who was in the unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Bar Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection, and others experienced mockings and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all these having gained approval through their faith." did not receive what was promised because God provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, as I said, we'll spend the next two weeks on this section and even at that, we won't cover every detail. But what we are going to do is to draw out from this text seven principles of faith exemplified by these, our spiritual heroes. We'll cover four Three or four, we'll see, of those principles today. So, the first faith principle we see exemplified within this passage of Scripture is this. People who live out their faith please God in their worship. 
verses 1 through 6, tell us about perhaps the first biblical example of a noteworthy act of faith. We are told that Abel pleased God specifically through faith-filled worship. And as we discussed last week, verse 6 tells us plainly that without faith it is impossible to please God at all. Since the Bible also explicitly states that worship brings pleasure to God, for example, in chapter 13 of the same book, John 4 as well, this means that in Abel we see two principles coming together. We see that people who worship by faith please God. Let's remember what faith is once more from last week. We learned that biblically speaking, faith is assured conviction fueled by the evidence of things unseen. Remember also that we talked about two kinds of evidence, one being more empirical, such as the kind of proof that would stand up in a court of law, and the other being of a more internal nature, a certain kind of belief that is both enabled by God and chosen by an individual until it becomes a strong enough conviction to even serve as further evidence in and of itself. We learn that faith is a God-enabled choice to put our trust in Him. Faith is both assured personal conviction, and it is also God-provided evidence, being deeply held belief that is spiritually sourced. God fuels our faith, and this provides further evidence of His reality. From Abel, we learn that people who worship this kind of faith please God. Think about the scene. Cain and Abel both come to worship the same God, Yahweh. Good for them, right? I mean, they both show up to church, but only one of them worships in a way that is pleasing. The question is, why was Abel's worship more pleasing to God than Cain's? Was it because he sacrificed an animal as opposed to the vegetables that Cain brought? This was a factor but we have to dig deeper to see what it was about Abel's method that really brought pleasure to God. We learned recently that the blood of animals was never particularly pleasing to God in and of itself. No, it was always about the heart and the faith behind the offering. Faith looking forward to the Savior who would, in fact, suffer and bleed and die for our sins. See, the reason for God's pleasure in anyone's worship has little or nothing to do with the method or the substance of the sacrifice itself. How do I know? Well, that's the cool thing about the book of Hebrews. It answers many of the questions we have when we read the Old Testament stories. We don't have to wonder what was better about Abel's sacrifice because we have an inspired commentary on this ancient event right here in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me first make sure everyone understands that this New Testament passage, which is our text to study today, is written in the first century AD. And it is written about stories that took place, in this case, thousands of years earlier. These stories were originally recorded in books like Genesis and other parts of the Old Testament, but here we have a post-Christ New Testament writer telling us more about those stories under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in this passage, things are written that we would have no other way of knowing. In other words, in Hebrews, we have further enlightenment from God, further revelation even, concerning what we were really supposed to get out of some of those Old Testament stories and teachings. And by the way, uh, many Sunday school teachers over the years would have done better to see what Hebrews said about those stories uh, before they started trying to teach them. At any rate, in this case, we discover 
from the writer of Hebrews that Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's, not because of any outward thing, but very specifically because his offering was offered in faith. It was by faith that Abel offered a better sacrifice. That's what it says in our text. See, folks, by faith, Abel was focused on the recipient of his worship. He was thinking about and doing this for the invisible God of creation. Meanwhile, the fallout from the original scene recorded in Genesis 4 shows that Cain was focusing on himself. The difference here boils down to worship driven by assured conviction about God, fueled by the evidence, though unseen, versus worship that is selfishly trying to somehow be impressive. The true difference is faith in God. Just look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. One of the most important principles in the entire Bible, if not the most important, is that righteousness before God comes only through faith. We will talk more about that in the weeks to come, but notice that what made Abel's offering righteous in God's eyes was faith. Lack of faith, then, is what made Cain's offering displeasing. It was by faith and because of faith that Abel offered a better sacrifice. Now, it is also true that Abel's faith was manifested in an offering that God would have preferred because of the blood pointing forward to Christ, as we talked about two weeks ago. But how could Abel have known this? The law had not yet been received. No sacrificial system had been instituted. As far as we know, God had not said a word about any of this as we're still in the fourth chapter of Genesis when we read about Cain and Abel. How did Abel know? Well, he didn't know for sure, you see. Just like we don't always know what God wants. But because of his faith in what he could not see, Abel chose wisely. That's another lesson for us. When we keep our focus on Jesus and make choices based on faith in what we cannot see, that is focused on the unseen God rather than ourselves or other people or what anybody else thinks, we always make better choices and choices that are pleasing to God. The most obvious principle in our text, though, is that true worship requires true faith. And I might add that worship is bigger than what you do in a worship service. While I do not ever want to diminish what we do when we worship together here in this place or broaden the definition of worship to the point of meaninglessness, the fact is that it is only by faith and the unseen that any of what we do or say can be pleasing to God, whether that's here in our worship service or through the worship that our very lives should be. So how can we apply this today? Cain brought plants and Abel brought an animal. But in our worship, we don't bring such things to God, right? Jesus put an end to the sacrificial system, and he made worship even less about the external and even more about the internal, so that today we bring God our hearts in worship, and we do this through various tools. We sing songs of worship to God, and they ought to be sung in a heartfelt way, not in a stoic way, as if God were not in the room. We also pray to him, and we listen to his voice, we submit to the teaching of God's Word when we hear it. Beyond this, the Bible indicates that simple obedience can be worshipful. These are only a few examples. 
of our offerings of worship. But the point is that none of these things can be done in a way that pleases God without faith, without assured faith, fully convinced faith in the unseen God. But don't miss the positive spin on this either. The fact is that when we do worship in faith, we can know that God is pleased. Maybe you thought God wasn't pleasable, especially by you. Not true. He can be pleased. And He is pleased when you worship Him in biblical faith. So what about it? Is your worship of God more like Abel's or more like Cain's? Do you come to God in faith when you sing songs of praise or do you forget that He's even listening? Do you think more about how you sound or more about the one to whom you are singing? Are you thinking about how others might be looking at you? Or are you looking at Him? By the way, the simple command, sing to God, appears in the book of Psalms almost a hundred times. Do you do that? Do you sing to God? Do you come to the unseen God in faith when you pray? Or do you just go through the motions wondering if He really cares? Do you sit before God in faith in order to really hear from His Word when it's preached? Or is it more like sitting through the pastor's little talk? Or do you live your life with the kind of faith that knows God is pleased with your efforts? Or do you do whatever you do begrudgingly, just hoping to not get zapped with judgment? Or maybe just try to be better than somebody else, like Cain? One kind of worship is pleasing to God. The other is not. The difference comes down to your faith. Some of us need to get our faith on when it comes to worship. God is here, though He is unseen. And God is there when you meet with Him in the morning, as I hope you do. Do you come to your God in biblical faith? Think about it. Do you regularly come to God in faith? If not, you may find yourself jealous of those who do. But the choice is yours, just as it was Cain's. Some of you know the rest of the story. Cain wound up so jealous that he killed his brother. And so perhaps the first or maybe the second archetype of the blood of Christ was found in Abel's blood, crying up from the ground to God. The blood of Abel continues to speak even today in this very message. And what does it say? It says that people who live out their faith please God in their worship. And somebody says, yeah, but Abel also died. That's right. Abel was killed. He died. And at that moment, Abel became the first human being to enter heaven. A paradise parallel to the one lost by his parents. Didn't take very long. Think about this. Abel became heaven's very first human citizen. He made it there because his faith pleased God. And I think this is also the reason his name appears first in the lists of those who exemplified faith as God defines it. We can see this point proven that Abel got the better end of the deal by pleasing God and winding up in heaven sooner, by looking at Enoch in verse 5, where it says his faith pleased God so much, the Lord just went ahead and took him home. And folks, whether we go the way of Abel or Enoch, the reward of those who please God by faith awaits. 
This actually brings us right into the second faith principle exemplified in Hebrews 11, which is this. People who live out their faith receive salvation. People who live out their faith receive salvation. We see this in every example, but especially in Noah and Rahab. Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And then verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Both Noah and Rahab acted by faith and both of them were saved. What were they saved from? In both cases, they were saved from the wrath of God poured out upon sinful mankind. Yeah, God does that. He pours out wrath. And for the record, he does it generally when a group of people gets bad enough. Bad enough? That's right. That is exactly what we see in Scripture. When people get bad enough, wrath comes. We talk about how all, all sin is offensive to God, which is true. But when we think it's all the same to God, we have wandered into blatant error. But beyond this, read your Bible and you'll see that there's something like a cup that has to fill up before, God's, before God pours out His wrath. Eventually, the God of the Bible gets fed up folks. Read it. Truly biblical. Personally, I can't help but believe that God is uh, just about done right about now. <laughs> you know, it just seems like the cup is nearly full. But don't miss the point that even in his wrath, he saves those with faith. So, which one is it going to be? for you. Wrath or salvation? People who live out their faith receive salvation, even during seasons of wrath. For Noah, faith meant building an ark, which seemed crazy at the time. If you read the story, you'll see that God's salvation came to Noah and his family specifically because of his faith. The ark served as an archetype, a foreshadowing of his faith, uh, of Christ, of the cross, both made of wood, both vehicles of salvation, both requiring an act of personal faith in the Word of God in order to actually save. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that salvation comes as an offering of grace to us from God and that it is applied through a faith decision to receive it. Applied to Noah, the Bible says he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It says he found this grace because of righteousness. But we also know that there's only one way any human can be de deemed righteous before God through faith. No principles more clear throughout the Bible than this. Righteousness comes only through faith. And so grace always comes with faith and through faith. In other words, grace was given to Noah because of his faith. And this faith in the unseen was put into practice even as he lived it out by doing something everyone thought was crazy. Building an ark on dry ground. Similarly, faith in the unseen is also required to believe your sins were paid for on the cross. The point being that faith is always the vehicle of salvation. Let it also be understood that since Noah is listed here, we know that he was saved from much more than the flood. 
only to live a few more years, but also he was saved from the wages of sin to eternal life. That's what faith can do. Faith can save you because of God's grace. Rahab's act of faith was found in harboring spies who she knew worked for Yahweh, God. She helped Joshua and Caleb and the other 10 Hebrew commandos out of uh, the city of Jericho. This put her in great danger. A lot of risk comes with faith in this world. She was in danger from her own people, but she seemed to recognize that the people from whence she came were on the wrong side of God. By the way, do you think there can still be any Rahabs today? Even from places like Portland, maybe? I think so. And I'll make no mistake, Rahab's people were wrong. So wrong and so far from God. These Canaanites sacrificed their own children to false gods, among other things. And this woman herself lived as a prostitute. Still somehow, apparently in repentant faith, Rahab did exactly what it took to avoid the coming wrath of God. She got on her ark. Uh, she turned toward the cross. She accepted God's offer of salvation by faith. Rahab could see that God had reached his limit. He was fed up. She knew that he had decreed that they were all going to be driven out from their land or die. That included her, and she believed the word of the Lord that it was going to happen. For whatever reason, like few others among her people, Rahab believed the word of the Lord. Likely, she had heard of these people of God and all that God had done for them, and so she was ready to make her choice. When Rahab acted by faith in Israel's God, he responded with the grace of salvation. Because of her faith, God not only spared Rahab, but she wound up marrying Israel's new leader, Joshua. She became the matriarch of eight prophets, including Jeremiah. Isn't that incredible? Just a simple little step of faith in her life was forever changed, including her progeny, her children, and their children, and their children. According to Matthew, Rahab was even a direct ancestor to Joseph, earthly father to Jesus Christ. Faith brings salvation. And friends, when God saves, he completely saves. Just as I also said about Noah, faith brings eternal salvation. But don't miss the obvious either, that faith often brings salvation in a temporal sense as well. Faith in God through desperate times actually saved the physical lives of Noah and Rahab. Daniel's experience in the lion's den is also mentioned in our text. He too was saved in a particular moment by faith. Throughout the Bible we see faith bringing salvation, sometimes in a temporal sense, always in an eternal sense. On this note, does anyone else know? Deep down, that there have been times, points in your life, where God saved you from great harm or death. Anybody? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I know there have been several times when I should have been seriously injured or killed, and God saved me. What kind of person do you think it takes to plant a church, by the way? Risk taker. <laughs> My poor mother. God saved me several times. Does that mean I'm never going to get hurt or that I'm never going to die? Obviously not. But I believe my faith in God makes a difference, even in this life. I believe salvation comes to those who live out their faith. One other point on this, 
It was never my faith in a specific outcome that saved me from harm. In fact, personally, I try to stay ready to die. I freak out my kids on this, but it's just the way it is. So in all of my um, near-death experiences, I, I don't credit my faith that God would save me from that particular thing because I never knew for sure if he would. What I believe about those points in time is that through my assured faith in God and his character, he chose to save me and to extend my life possibly more than once. Remember, even in this book of Hebrews that we've been studying, way back in chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that angels are sent out to minister to us, to watch over us, to help us. To help who? Remember what it says. We are specifically told that angels come to minister to all those who will inherit salvation. Who inherits salvation? People of biblical faith. And so, yes, I believe God protects us through our faith, even in this life, right up until our time on earth is done. The third faith principle we see, exemplified by our biblical heroes, is this. People who live out their faith maintain eternal perspective. We see this principle lived out by all of the patriarchs and matriarchs, I guess, but especially by Abraham. Our text says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham lived like a man who knew this life is not all there is. But that is an understatement. Most of us probably keep heaven in the back of our minds. At least we pull out thoughts of heaven when someone dies or when we're afraid. But folks, that is not anywhere close to the perspective we see in Abraham. To maintain an eternal perspective is much more than just thinking about heaven when circumstances demand it. Abraham didn't even know he was going. He didn't have much of a plan, did he? Some of you are like, yep, that's me. (laughs) I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing (laughs) with my life. Okay, well, if it's encouraging, let it be encouraging. But honestly, Abraham had clearly not been to the right conferences or seminars. (laughs) He didn't seem bothered by where he would be tomorrow or what he would be doing. Abraham was a nomad for God. And think of that phrase, Northwesterners seem to like, not all who wander or are lost. Not all who wander are lost. Seems like I most often see that alongside other more offensive bumper stickers, but let's agree where we can. And that is definitely true. Not all who wander are lost. See, Abraham just wanted to follow God wherever he led day by day. And don't you know that he looked lost to somebody And yet, far from being lost, Abraham was actually walking by faith, like few others, one step at a time. Even after Abraham got to the promised land, he continued to live as as if he were an alien in a foreign land. Did you ever notice that? He didn't really settle down so much. That's what our text says in verse 9, that he stuck with the tents. I guess he was homeless, in a sense. Though to be clear, Abraham never expected anyone else to take care of him. Regardless, what does this mean? Why would Abraham live this way 
even after he got to the land where he was going. The writer of Hebrews tells us why. He says it is because Abraham knew that ultimately he would never arrive in this life. He was looking further to a land beyond. He knew that human life is temporary and fragile, that in our bodies we live under the curse of death. He also knew that God had spoken to him about a place not of this world. And by the way, when Jesus promised a new heaven and a new earth, he meant completely new ones. Read your Bible, the one uh, that gets utterly destroyed, folks. It's not like some remnant is going to still be here. There's gone, gone, wasted. Nothing that's here will be here. But I digress. Abraham knew God's promise, though couched in earthly language, was in reality all about eternity. The land in which he lived, the very ground upon which he walked, was not that in which he was to have faith. It could never be home. It wasn't really where he was going. I think about this a lot, personally. You can probably imagine why. Uh, look at my family. Uh, here we are, you know. Uh, I lived 40 um, of my years in the Midwest. Since coming here at the leading of God, folks have always wanted me to call this place home. Some, it seems, would prefer that I never mention where I came from. It's understandable. And I've been here in the Northwest for a full decade now. So, what do you think? Is this home? Brought all my family out here with me, even my parents. And here we are, still. Three houses in Ridgefield owned by Fords. This group of Fords, not to mention the other Fords. Is this home? Is this home? No. No, this is not home. And that is because my home is not on this earth. Neither the Midwest or the Northwest are home for me. How can I say that and still be happy by faith? Abraham was looking for something not found after unloading the U-Haul, folks. He was looking for something not even found after the tombstone had been placed. And so even when old Abe arrived at the location where he was to settle, he did not settle. He never really settled down. Wherever he lived on earth, Abraham saw himself as a visitor, an alien, a foreigner, a sojourner, someone just passing through, just staying for a while, a man on his way back home to where God was an ambassador for heaven, far from his comfortable little hobbit hole, never to fully return. See, my friends, this is the kind of perspective that faith in God can bring into your life. I hope you can see here that God holds this way of life up as an example of biblical faith, because I'm here to tell you that this kind of perspective, this kind of faith will change everything about your life. The fact is that so many of God's promises are not for this life. We are not promised heaven on earth. And you know, it takes a lot of faith for promises beyond this life to matter as much as they should. That takes faith. Even the biblical heroes did not receive most of their promises in this life or in this place, but they did have the strong conviction of assured faith in what was beyond from verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having wel welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking 
a country of their own, a different country. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. The country mentioned here is a reference to the New Jerusalem, as it's called in the book of Revelation. This is the place with streets of gold where the Bible says there'll be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more death. The place where Jesus reigns as eternal King of kings and Lord of lords, an eternal country for eternal people. The Bible says those who have placed their faith in Christ are already citizens of this eternal civilization. And that means that here on earth, we are just visiting. Now it's a challenge for our temporal minds. I mean, it really is. It's really quite difficult to live like this, isn't it? Aren't most of us consumed by our own little world most of the time? Well, what can I say? Do you want me to say that's okay? Maybe it's okay, I guess, but it's not the goal. Being consumed by the things of this world falls short of living by faith. Abraham shows us that people who truly live out their faith maintain eternal perspective all the time. Are you a person who's living out your faith? Or is your faith so weak right now that you can't see past the temporary world in front of your eyes? What do you do when your faith is weak? I gave you a twofold answer to that question last Sunday. I said you should ask God for faith, to seek faith from God with all your heart because He is the giver of it. And then I said you should choose to act on the faith He gives, put it into practice, do something. At some point, we must choose to trust and choose to believe and choose to think about the things of God, His country, His city, His kingdom. Who do you really live for? But you know, among Christians today, I've heard some belittle this type of thinking. Maybe you too have heard someone say something like this, that guy is so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Nonsense. Utter nonsense. The Bible says eternal perspective is a mark of true faith. Now, I will equivocate just a hair on this to clarify that I do not mean to say that we shouldn't care at all about the things that affect us in this world, nor am I saying that we shouldn't make any plans. I'm not telling you to disengage from your responsibilities as earthly citizens, even though our stay is short. We're not to close our eyes or hide in retreat. That is not what God is saying. Even Abraham had stores of food and more livestock than he needed for the day. What I am saying is you've got to bring eternal perspective into everything you think and everything you do on this earth. Those with faith are not consumed by the temporal. We are not swept away by those passing winds. We are not overwhelmed or consumed by temporary evils. Now, those who live by faith are consumed instead by the eternal, and everything they do in the temporal is guided by that perspective. How are you doing with this? Let me briefly illustrate to help you make the application. <clears throat> Jack, I don't think we have any Jacks, so I use Jack. Jack is a Christian who's looking down on the world. Like God, Jack is justifiably disgusted. He is sick of it. 
He hates what this culture is doing to his children and grandchildren. He constantly talks about how things used to be and how it could be that way again if others who think like him would become more involved in fighting back or in fixing the problem. Sally has her eyes on the kingdom of God. She isn't blind to the world, but she doesn't expect to fit in because she sees herself as a stranger here. She teaches this to her children. She knows she has a job to do as an ambassador in a foreign land, but she doesn't expect to really like it here all that much. She wonders how soon she'll get to go home to heaven. She looks forward to that day with great anticipation. Meanwhile, she lives her exiled life in such a way as to bring as many people with her as possible when the day comes to go home. Now, Jack has some points. He is not actually wrong in any of his thoughts. If more Christians stood up for what they believe in, there probably could be a few changes made back toward the right for a season. Jack is not wrong about any particular fact. And yet, the person of faith in the illustration is Sally, not Jack. Take note, you can be right and utterly faithless. Sally, on the other hand, is less focused on being right and more focused on being full of faith. She lives out this faith by maintaining an eternal perspective, even while trudging through this temporal world. Her faith is in what God can do through her, and she knows that ultimately his plan is for redemption, though it will only happen in his timing. Come what may, Sally's faith, like Abraham's, is in God and his eternal plan. I wonder how much differently Christians might come across today and what it would do, even for mission accomplishment, if we had faith more like that of Abraham. If we held on a little more tightly to the heavenly kingdom and a little more loosely to this worldly kingdom, I wonder how much more could be accomplished for God even here. I guess I don't really know about that, but I do know that people who live out their faith maintain eternal perspective. This is the point where I decide whether to do point four or not. You got, you got a little more? You got a little more? You wouldn't tell me. I don't see anybody asleep. I'm going to go ahead because next week the kids are singing and I need to preach shorter. So bear with me for another five minutes or so. Uh, yeah. Laughter is very telling. Um, lastly today, this is number four. People who live out their faith obey difficult commands. People who live out their faith obey difficult commands. Verse 8 tells us, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. And then picking up in verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendant shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Obviously today, if someone tried to say that God told him to kill uh, their son, we would lock such a person up, and rightly so. But the fact is that once in all of history, once in all of history, God actually did tell a man to do that. And that man was about to go through with it when God stopped him, later explaining that it was only to test his faith. And remember that God provided a ram to be sacrificed in place of Isaac because it was never in God's character to allow Abraham to kill Isaac as a sacrifice. Here, as with Abel, the faith of an Old Testament saint is used to foreshadow the cross of Christ. The principle I'm drawing out today is this. People who live out their faith obey difficult commands. Have you ever had the faith 
to obey a truly difficult command of God. Think, just think about it for a minute. If you've ever obeyed a particularly difficult command of God, you know that the key issue was faith. See, it isn't so hard to obey if you know that God is there and that God is actually calling you to do it. And he's going to empower you and help you with it, right? But friend, it takes faith to believe those things. Remember, God calls us to faith in the unseen. Our faith will not be made sight until the end. Twice so far, God has called my family to plant a church from scratch. And we did that both times. People always want to know how we can know. How did you know? When God speaks such things. That's tough to explain, but we can talk about it sometime if you want. What I can tell you is that both times it was difficult to surrender to the call. Not hearing an audible voice seemed crazy. Um, not seeing any writing on the wall. Needing to believe what we could not see. But really, that first step was, was nothing. We thought it was difficult to resign from our previous church with no idea how we would pay the bills both times. But that was nothing. We thought it was difficult to dive into a risky endeavor with a very high failure rate, but that was nothing. What was really difficult was sticking with it for 12 years the first time and five years so far the second time. There have been times when it was more difficult to endure than I can possibly express. I don't really like to think about the hard times. So just take my word for it that there have been times when I was hanging on by my fingernails. And there have certainly been times when I could have bailed out to easier possibilities. But God didn't let me go until we were finished the first time. And I'll be here as long as he wants me to be this time. As long as God wants. And see, that's what I'm saying. How do I know? How do I know what God wants? What kept us there in obedience for 12 years before and five years so far this time? Faith. Faith that God called us. Faith that he was with us. Faith that he had a plan and faith that he would let us know when his plan had changed. The only way we've made it is by faith that the things God promised would come true and that everything we had promised ourselves never was important anyway. Let me tell you one thing with certainty. If you live out your faith in some real and difficult ways, God is going to test you. Learn to expect the tests. We see this not only with Abraham, but throughout Scripture. In fact, hear this. Those with the most faith get their faith tested the most. That's the truth. Look no further than Abraham, right? I mean, his son? Are you kidding me? And why the test? And why do people with more faith get tested more? Because faith pleases God. And God created us for His pleasure. He loves to see your faith in action. That is, if you have any. If you do have faith, God will test it for His own pleasure because it brings Him glory. If you have a problem with that truth about God, you need to get over yourself. God is God and you are not. He made you. And if you are surrendered to Christ, then you are doubly His. I'll add that God also tests your faith because He loves you. And he knows that as your faith grows, so do you. See, the other side of this is 
There's no feeling in the world like coming out on the victorious side of one of God's tests. There's nothing like laying down something that's very hard to lay down only to have God give it right back or even lead you to something that's somehow better. Oh, man. This is better. Think how Abraham must have felt when the angel stayed his hand and the ram was caught in the thicket. He called that place, the Lord will provide. Abraham's faith became sight in that moment and it grew so much stronger all because he was willing to obey a difficult command. Difficult commands are actually wonderful opportunities, you see. For the record, I've been tested many times. I have. And God has stayed my hand several times to stop me from doing something crazy that I thought he wanted me to do more than once. At least some of those times, I believe God really had spoken. He really had led me to get to that point. But it turned out only to be a test. What a privilege to be tested by God. What a privilege. Many people are stuck on a treadmill in their walk with Christ because they've repeatedly refused to obey difficult commands. I'm going to be honest with you. For some people, this is a financial issue right? Others don't follow God across the street because of the fear of rejection. Sometimes that's me. I know I need to share more. What's my problem? Lack of faith. For others, your failure to have the faith to obey a difficult command may be a substance issue, an addiction. You just can't get it out of your life. Your problem is that you don't have faith that God will be enough. I believe God has called some of you to go on a mission trip or even just to share your testimony with someone, but it's difficult for you and you simply haven't had the faith. On another level, I've known more than a few runners in my life. What do I mean by a runner? A runner is someone who's called by God to a life of ministry. We need way more pastors and church planters than we have. Somebody who's called to be a pastor, missionary, something that requires another level of commitment, something that's lifelong, and 10 or 20 years later, not only are they still running away from that call, but they may not even believe in God at that point. But they struggle. Why? Because faith unapplied atrophies into oblivion. Just as it takes faith to obey difficult commands, when you refuse to obey, you lose faith. It's like a cycle, and this one can either flow in the positive or the negative. Maybe your faith is weak because you have been refusing to obey God in the hard things. Or maybe your faith is strong because you have been obeying God in something that is very challenging. Let me speak to the positive side of this for a moment by telling you this is where you want to live. I'm not perfect by any means, not even close. But I can tell you from experience, this is where you want to live. Life is better with faith, I assure you. In the interest of time, let me just give it to you in a sentence, and here it is. Obeying God in the difficult is like putting your faith on steroids, okay? It will pump you up, all right? Come on. When it's difficult, the more difficult the better. It's truly an amazing thing to experience. This can become a positive addiction until you're actually hoping God will ask you to do something else that's really difficult so you can experience a faith boost when you obey. It's an awesome way to live. And so let me just close this point out by saying if you want your faith to grow strong, 
you'll have to accept God's opportunities to exercise it. Simple as that. Let's review. The first three uh, four, uh, four principles of faith that we have seen exemplified in the lives of the biblical heroes are these. One, people who live out their faith please God in their worship. Abel's example was faith, of faithful worship, but it's true for all of life as well. Only through faith may we do anything that is pleasing to God. Secondly, we learned that people who live out their faith receive salvation. It is by grace through faith that we're saved, particularly as it comes to eternity. But faith can also bring earthly salvation, just as it did for people like Noah, Rahab, and Daniel. The Bible is clear that God loves to save from trouble those who walk by faith. Thirdly, people who live out their faith maintain eternal perspective. Abraham teaches us that faith means keeping your focus on the eternal, on God's kingdom, on his concerns. Faith reminds us that we are only ambassadors here and that our eternal address includes heaven's zip code. Lastly, we learn that people who live out their faith obey difficult commands. Again, from Abraham, we learn that faith is not something you just have passively. Faith must be lived out Faith is fully developed until it's put into practice. If your faith has not been uh, leading to the results that we have mentioned, it may be too weak. And it may be too weak because it's not actually being lived out. I encourage you to get some guts and go for it. Trust God. Get out of your comfort zone. Live out your faith and see what happens. Now, to hear the last three incredibly important faith principles, you'll need to come two weeks in a row. Next time, we'll cover the rest of these awesome principles from the Word of God. And I'm also praying that He shows each of us, each of us uh, I'm going to try to get some practical in there next week, ways that we can put all of this into practice. All right, let's pray. Father, thank You so much for being with us today and for speaking through Your Word. Uh, I hope that right now, uh, as Your people, that we might even have heard from You or are hearing from You some real ways that we can respond um, that we can um, maybe just focus on this last point for a minute to, to live out our faith in the difficult and, and thereby um, put it on steroids, if you will. And uh, Lord, um, just maybe you would spark everyone here with something real, uh, either now or over the next day or two, that would allow us to, to really put this into practice, find out how true it is. Because we know that it is by our faith that we bring pleasure to you. And that's what we're here for. So help us with this, Lord. For anyone here, God, who has never put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ in the first place, um, uh, so much of your word is written about how to apply it, how to live it out past that point. Uh, so we all have that point. Um, as we become believers, there's a point in time where it happened. Well, maybe there's here, someone here today that's uh, coming to that point that we might say crossing the line of faith, um, uh, the point of uh, real conversion uh, that happens, again, by grace through faith. Because you love us, you offer us this gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You gave us this gift. It's right there in front of us. Maybe there's someone here today that suddenly has enough faith enough assurance, enough conviction of something unseen to say yes to you and to receive salvation. I pray for that person. I pray that in this moment they would know they're forgiven forever because they've turned to you and because you have the answer that their sin is paid for 
and that this gift is eternal. It can never be taken away. Lord, thank you for those that you've entrusted here in our church with us to be able to disciple, that is to help them move from that point forward. Thank you for the growth that's happening in many of our lives. Please continue to work. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.